1: Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, the first of a two part conversation with a documentary filmmaker about the third secret of Fatima and the Vatican's battle to conceal it. Was the third prophecy foreseeing a great apostasy in the Catholic Church? Has it already happened? Has the church been hijacked by evil forces?
2: When communism started to take hold, it adopted this plan. It it was in line with this plan of infiltrating the church. And the way they did it was they came into the seminaries and they became priests and they worked their way up the
0: ranks. The Horrible Movie Podcast is a weekly show hosted by Jack Ultramat. Jack invites a guest who brings a horrible theater-released movie to dissect. Jack and his guest take you through the highs and lows of the movie and what makes it horrible. New movies, older movies, cult classics, or box office busts. No movie is spared or safe from The Horrible Movie Podcast. It's a fun show with clean language, and it's available through Spreaker.com. Apple Podcasts, StudioDNA.media, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible.
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
0: Welcome to your Wednesday. Middle of the week is always tough. Actually, I find the first five days after the weekend are the most difficult. Paul Stark is the director of an explosive documentary, The Vatican Deception, and he is standing by. Before we get rolling here, though, I want to say hello to a couple of people who took the time to email me to let me know how and where and when they listen to Conspiracy Unlimited. Kevin Evans in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Hey, Kevin. He writes, Hi, Richard. I listen to your show on my iPhone. While at work, it makes the days go better. Thanks. Next up, we have Barrett Owens from Tennessee. Barrett writes, Hi, Richard. I'm a veteran, former morning DJ, and I truly appreciate all of your shows and have for years, including Coast to Coast. Thank you, Barrett. Uh, He says, So both my wife, who works nights at St. Jude, and I listen on my Samsung S7 over a pair of SBB Bluetooth speakers mounted over the bed before and sometimes after taking a midday nap. Hey, I'm all about the midday nap. Uh, We are in the Memphis, Tennessee suburbs, home of the King and Danny Thomas St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Conspiracy Unlimited was a welcome addition since they are less than 60 minutes and perfect for a nice, relaxing pre-sleep dose of conspiracy. Namaste. Uh, Same to you, Barrett, and uh, my regards to your lovely bride. If you want to send me an email, I would love to hear from you and tell me where and when and how you listen to Conspiracy Unlimited. It's richardserrett1 at gmail.com, richardserrett1 at gmail.com. Well, this is developing into a bit of a theme week. Monday, Sister Carrie, a.k.a. the nun with a gun, was here talking about MKUltra and the Jesuits and something called Nano Domestic Quell the use of nanotechnology in our food and water in order to bring about total population control. Well, we're going to continue in this vein, more or less, on this episode and Friday's episode as well. My guest is Paul Stark, a documentary filmmaker and a practicing Catholic. His documentary, The Vatican Deception, is scheduled for worldwide online release on October 13th, vaticandeception.com, vaticandeception.com. And the documentary uncovers a nefarious plot within the Vatican to suppress the Third Secret of Fatima, which was conveyed to three children in Fatima, Portugal, in 1917 uh, by an apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And it is widely speculated that the Third Secret warns of a great apostasy inside the church a falling away from the faith by church officials, perhaps even the Pope himself. Paul Stark has been with me before on Conspiracy Unlimited, as well as Coast to Coast AM. He's back to talk about the worldwide release and to go into more depth into this amazing documentary. Paul Stark, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: Hi, thank you, Richard, and thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure.
0: Vatican Deception, A Prophecy of Hope and the Epic Battle to conceal it. We had you on previously talking about it, in fact you and I have been on Coast to Coast talking about it and uh, I was very honoured and privileged to present the uh, Toronto premiere of your fine documentary several months ago. You are slated uh, to release it worldwide online. Give us the details.
2: Yeah, so we've uh, made the decision to make it available uh, online to the entire world uh, and uh, the date of the release is going to be October 13. Uh, the uh, The time uh, that we're releasing it is at uh, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, but uh, in Europe that'll be uh, noon time um, uh, by their uh, clock. and the reason we chose that is because... Um, there's something special about that date. It'll, it'll, it'll be a, uh, the 101-year anniversary of uh, the miracle of the sun that was reported by 70,000 spectators in Fatima, and it happened exactly at that time on that day.
0: Of course, and that is obviously central to this uh, documentary, Vatican Deception, exploring the, the three secrets of, of Fatima, uh, which occurred back in 1917, three young people, uh, Portuguese children. There were three, right?
2: That's right. Just Lucia, uh, the first one, her name was Lucia. She's the one who communicated uh, with the apparitions of the Blessed Virgin, and then we have uh, her two cousins, which were uh, Jacinta and Francisco.
0: And this happened in in Fatima, Portugal. Uh, just, uh, you know, during the uh, the First World War, on the the eve of the outbreak of the Russian Revolution, um, so just quickly walk us through the, the first two, the first two secrets before we get to the all-important. Third secret.
2: Yeah, so the first two secrets, uh, the, the first secret was uh, it was a vision that uh, the Blessed Virgin presented to the three children. Uh, and it was really quite simply a vision of hell. And uh, the children describe it with uh, enormous with uh, actually quite a frightening amount of detail. Uh, the specifics uh, in their description are, are quite, um, they're quite remarkable. So that was the first vision. The second uh, vision, or secret, I should say, the second secret was a secret about a number of things. Uh, it uh, predicted uh, the, uh, the end of World War I. It predicted the beginning of World War II. And it spoke about the role that Russia would play in all of this. Uh, That if uh, what the Blessed Virgin asked for was done, we would see peace. But if it was not done, we would see a time of war. We would see um, Russia spread her errors throughout the world. Uh, And uh, so that's sort of the, the essence of the second secret.
0: All right. Now, not to belabor this point, but I always have to bring this up when we talk about the consecration of Mother Russia, because you're Catholic. I am not. I am Orthodox Christian. And of course, Russia is a, an Orthodox country, Eastern Orthodox country. Uh, and so what, what is meant by the consecration of Mother Russia? Because there seems to be some discrepancy. I mean, some have said, and I think you have said, it just means the blessing of Mother Russia. Uh, but others, I, uh, in fact, I, I believe we had a, a spokesperson on from the, the Fatima Center uh, when we did Coast to Coast, who was quite adamant that it meant the conversion of Mother Russia. So which is it, uh, Paul?
2: Well, it's. I guess the, uh, the consecration is hoped to bring about the conversion of Russia, but a, a consecration is not in itself a conversion. Uh, the consecration is really more of a blessing, uh, the, if, if you look at the word consecration in itself, uh, it means to set aside for a holy purpose. And um, to give you some examples, um, you know, uh, when a bishop is ordained, for example, he's he is consecrated. Uh, in, in other words, he's he's set aside for a holy purpose of the church. Um, same with um, you know you know the chalice that is used for uh the the body and bread of uh, christ during a mass uh that chalice is is consecrated for a holy use it's used for the sacrifice of the mass um and uh, same with uh when when the body and blood of christ is consecrated uh that's the word the again consecrated means uh, put aside for a holy purpose so it's it's being uh, it's being set aside for a holy purpose uh you can also say it's being blessed so it's um you know, it's similar to a blessing if people are having a hard time with, uh, with the word.
0: Right. Okay. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed
2: for the ones who get it done.
0: Okay, so the second secret, uh, you know, talking about war, uh, the need for the, the consecration of, uh, of Mother Russia. Uh, now, the, the third secret, the all-important third secret, this is where the rubber hits the road because uh, the Vatican has long maintained that they have revealed The full contents of the Third Secret. This is really where where the the documentary sort of drills down uh, as to whether or not that is in fact the case, and the documentary argues that they have not. So what part of the Third Secret has the Vatican actually released? So
2: what we understand from the evidence, and and by the way I know that uh, there are a lot of Catholics who have a lot of difficulty with this, because uh, The Vatican's official statements uh, are leading us to believe that the full secret has been published, and uh, for us to even contemplate that it wasn't suggests that the the Vatican officials are not being upfront with us. And, And I know, I understand that's a very difficult thing for all Catholics, but we, you know, we need to look at the evidence, and we need to accept that there's a truth in here somewhere, and uh, what I've been finding from the evidence is that uh, the part that has been published of the Third Secret is a vision. And if you go to the Vatican website, you can see what they published about it. It's, uh, if, if I was to describe the vision, it's, um, it's a vision about a bishop in white. They call him a bishop in white, but they, uh, they seem to suggest he, he's the pope, or he may be the pope. And he's walking through a city of ruins destroyed by something and uh, he comes to uh, a mountain of rubble and at the top of this mountain there's a large wooden cross and so this uh, bishop in white uh, begins climbing the mountain uh, along with his uh, cardinals and bishops and lay people and apparently he is shot down he's shot dead by bullets and arrows. And uh, one of the other things, apparently, that's happening in this vision is that uh, there are, uh, there's an angel on each side of the cross at the top of this, uh, this mountain and they're collecting the blood of martyrs. So that's what the Vatican published. But, you know, when you look at that vision, you have to ask yourself, well, what does all that mean? The, the first secret was really quite clear. The second secret was very clear. And now we have this third secret that's a vision, and it seems like, well, we don't, we can't make sense of that. Why would the Blessed Virgin come to these children and have this huge spectacle happen in Fatima, only to give us a message that is unclear? It, it doesn't make sense.
0: Right now, did the Virgin Mary give um, Sister uh, Lucia Santos, uh, who was? you know, obviously present during uh, Fatima, uh, the, the, uh, the apparition at Fatima. She was one of the three Portuguese uh, uh, children and she's now, at this point, uh, a, a nun. Uh, yeah. Obviously she's now deceased, but you know, in the 50s and 60s, um, was she given specific instructions by the Virgin Mary how the Third Secret was to be revealed?
2: Yes, and uh, so you're leading me into uh, what is very interesting with this third secret is that uh, Lucia was told to write on the envelope that the secret was to be opened in 1960. And um, so when, when we were coming toward 1960, uh, all Catholics around the world were, were familiar with the story and they were anticipating the release of this uh, missing secret. Uh, And in fact, uh, Warner Brothers even made a feature film about it uh, in the 1950s, and it was nominated for an Academy Award in 1953. So people knew about this, and and so uh, leading up to 1960, there was a large anticipation for what this third secret was going to be. And what happened was in 1960, uh, the Vatican decided not to publish it. For whatever reason they had, they decided not to. And um, so something uh, about 1960 seems to be relevant. There were some bishops that asked uh, Sister Lucia, why 1960? And uh, she she gave two answers to that. Number one, she said, because then it will seem clearer. And the other thing she said was, because the Blessed Virgin wishes it so. So it seems that mankind was meant To have been made aware of something in 1960 and that it was important for us to know at that time.
0: Well it's interesting Uh, because what's happening in 1960, I believe it's 1960, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the beginning of the Vatican II Council.
2: That's right and it was announced in 1959 by Pope John the 23rd. So um, by 1960 already the world was aware that uh, a council had been called and uh, if you look back on history, uh, the council uh, revolutionized the church. It changed it in a way that is unprecedented in history. Uh, John 23rd, his, uh, his word for the council was aggiornamente or aggiornamento, which means uh, a bringing up to date. And so uh, his, his goal at the time with the council was to, to breathe fresh life into the church. Um, But what happened was, uh, you know, there was a lot that changed, and again, this is a a thing that Catholics have a lot of difficulty with. I'm not uh, necessarily saying that the council itself was intended to be an evil council, but the thing is, whatever happened in that council, it changed everything. Uh whatever interpretations people took away from it, it changed everything and and in fact, there were some things that took place during the council itself that really brings to question uh what its intent was and um you know whether 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 it was a valid council
0: well give me a for I mean, instance of something significant that changed uh in the uh in the the functioning of 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 the church, or it perhaps changed in terms of how particular sacraments are carried out, give me an example or two.
2: Uh, okay, well, the main example, or I think the the one that that makes a lo- the most sense here, uh, in the context of the prophecies of Fatima, is the idea that uh, they they invited uh, the um, uh, Orthodox. Uh, the Orthodox uh, Church, uh, members of the Orthodox Church, to come into the council, uh, and they made a promise to those invitees uh, that they would not mention communism, they would not uh, talk about it, they would not condemn it, they would not even mention it. And uh, this was a radical change in thinking for the church because uh, if you look at uh, if you look at the decades and centuries leading up to that, every pope uh, for the last 300 years before that was condemning communism. They were calling it uh, an evil regime. They were saying that uh, c- you know, communism was uh, a source of error and uh, that uh, people uh, cannot be trusted uh, if, they're, uh, open, if they're communists because uh, they, they don't have a respect for truth. They don't uh, adhere to truth, and and they don't uh, believe in the existence of God.
0: All of which is true. All of which is true.
2: Yeah. So this is is one of the things that was very peculiar about that council, is that now all of a sudden you had uh, all of the entire church making decisions about its future, but it can't talk about that one big elephant in the room, if you want to call it that, uh, which was communism. They weren't allowed to even bring it up. And so, in that sense, it had, a, uh, it had a very, very big influence on the outcome and on people's thinking.
0: Did something it, also it, not change w- re- with regards to the way the, the, the Mass was conducted?
2: Yes. That was Now, if you want to look at it from a spiritual standpoint, uh, that was a monumental change. Um, uh, one of the, some of the key things, and you know, maybe, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with the Catholic Mass, um, but uh, it used to be that the Mass uh, was held with the priest having his back to the people. He used to face a wall, and uh, on uh, the, um, uh, the altar, it used to be up against the wall, there used to be the tabernacle on the wall. And so he used to face the tabernacle, as you know, uh, represents God. Uh, God is in the tabernacle. So um, the Mass used to be held this way, where uh, the priest faced the tabernacle, and and so did all of the people. And uh, so what they did is they they moved the tabernacle off to the side, and they moved the altar away from the wall, and now you have the priest facing the people. And uh, this is... A big change, it may not seem like a big deal, but now all of a sudden, God is not central to the, the Mass. Now it, it becomes more of a, a dialogue between the priest and the congregation, with God instead of being central to it, uh, he's sort of off to the side somewhere. Right, uh, right. At least that's the perception that that change creates.
0: Sure, sure, I understand that. Uh, and And what about the use of Latin in the Mass?
2: Uh, that's the other thing, yeah, they, so all masses around the world, uh, I would say, for the most part were, were said in Latin, uh, but uh, with Vatican II, uh, they now uh, say it what they call in the vernacular, which means in the language of the people. So uh, this was another monumental change, and you could see how that's quite significant because uh, Latin is a very precise language. And so when a mass is being said, it's being said in a very precise way, uh, you lose some of those subtleties. Uh, you may or may lose some of the subtleties uh, in, in these other languages, but not all the masses are the same now, uh, you could say, because uh, translations are, are never 100% perfect.
0: So in, in, in sort of, um, in summation, the the effect of Vatican II was kind of a liberalization of, that's right. of, uh, and that's putting it mildly, <laughs> uh, some yeah. would use much harsher language, I suppose, but the liberalization of, of the Church and Church doctrine, certain aspects that's of right.
2: it. That's right, that's uh, right. Even the, the Eucharist, which is really the most, uh, one of the most holy things in the Church, the, the consecrated Eucharist, that's the Body of Christ, uh, they started to allow people to take it in the hand when they go to communion. So when they receive God, when they receive Christ, they're receiving the Eucharist in the hand. That was never allowed before. And the reason why is because uh, that Eucharist is a sacred thing. To, to handle it or to mishandle it was a sacrilege. And um, so why would it be a sacrilege before? And all of a sudden now it's not for people to be handling it. So it's, uh, you know, there's significant changes, and there's spiritual changes. This is the thing. This this affects people's uh, perception of, of the spiritual um, aspect of the mass.
0: Right, and again, it's this is an interesting backdrop, because again, this is when Sister Lucia Santos believes she was instructed by the uh, by an apparition of the Virgin Mary, which continued obviously to her while she was a nun. It, it wasn't simply isolated to the uh, to October of, of 1917. The Virgin Mary continued to appear to Sister Lucia. Uh, but, but, so we have Vatican II and all of these things going on and this is when the Third Secret is to be released uh, and yet it is not. However, we should point out one more thing that happened at Vatican II. And that is something that was kind of slipped in, very last moment, surreptitiously, having to do with the, the, the authority of the Pope over the various bishops.
2: That's right. And this actually is, uh, it does play a key role in the overall story of Fatima. Um, so during the council, there was a, a vote uh, that was held. And uh, what this vote entailed was uh, I believe it was a number of things regarding uh, the council documents, but within there, there was a vote uh, that would affect the supremacy of the Pope, so his supreme authority. And it was snuck in there, uh, or they uh, there were there were people who tried to sneak it in there without being noticed. Uh, but somebody did find out about this uh, this plan. And um, so what happened was uh, the Pope at the time, who was Pope Paul VI, uh, when he found out about it, he decided to write a document that said, you know, although, you know, I accept these uh, council documents, uh, I I will maintain uh, my status of supremacy. Uh, the, the the name for this note was called nota presia el explicativa which is I guess uh, the Latin for uh, an explicative note uh, so this, uh, this note was written and it was included with the documents during the vote but uh, the thing is now if you look at the council documents at this point you'll find that that note hasn't been included with them so the note has been dropped so essentially what the documents are saying is that uh, the um, the bishops of the church they share in the power of the pope. Uh, that the, the pope is no longer the the supreme pontiff. So that the the vote said that, and that goes against Catholic teaching, because you can't be a Catholic if you don't accept the pope's uh, supremacy. So um, that vote undermines Catholic uh, belief in a significant way. And what's v- most interesting about all of that is that uh, there's, um, there's the one thing we never mentioned uh, that you kind of touched on it, uh, that Ru- Russia is going to play a role in all of this. And this consecration of Russia needed to be done with all of the bishops in the world. And uh, that's the only way that the consecration is going to bring about peace in the world. But now, since the Second Vatican Council and since these bishops have uh, basically taken over or uh, since the Pope has, l- has lost his supremacy or appears to have lost his supremacy. I'm not going to say he has because I believe he still is the Supreme Pontiff. He hasn't, doesn't seem to be exercising his power anymore. But, um, but that vote seems to undermine the Pope's ability to fulfill that last request uh, of Fatima, which is the consecration of Russia.
0: In other words, it's not enough for the Pope to do it. Uh, in St. Peter's Square, all the bishops around the world have to be doing it simultaneously.
2: That's right. At the very same time, whether they're there in Rome with him or in their own diocese, uh, some people might be doing it in the middle of the night because uh, the time zone differences, Uh, but they need to be doing it at the same time, and it needs to be all the bishops of the world, and it needs to be a public consecration. It needs to be a, an obvious thing that people are aware is happening. Right. So that, that's the specific instructions.
0: And now because this, this uh, amendment uh, at Vatican II basically gives the bishops some latitude as to whether they're going to follow the Pope's order on this, so by design it seems they were making it nigh on impossible for the consecration to take place.
2: That's that's what it seems to be. It almost seems like this thing that was being warned about in prophecy that was going to happen in the 1960s was going to undermine the instructions uh, of the Blessed Virgin uh, for the Pope to bring about a time of peace in the world. Hey, this is Tony Merkel, host of The Confessionals, a blog talk radio podcast that brings you weekly interviews with eyewitness accounts of strange and unexplained events. From paranormal activity to UFO encounters to Bigfoot sightings, step into The Confessionals as we explore mysterious real-life stories. Check us out on your favorite podcast app or theconfessionalspodcast.com. Many thanks to Conspiracy Unlimited for having me on the air. I'll see you all on The Confessionals.
1: Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. <laughs> conspiracy Unlimited do, 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 do. with Richard Serrett,
0: Paul Stark, the director of the Vatican Deception, is here. The most disturbing aspect of Vatican II seems to be the the um, the, the edicts. The, you know. Ixne on on bashing the communists. So, what do, what's the takeaway from that? That that the Vatican at this point had been infiltrated by communists.
2: Yeah, I've uh, I've done some research on that, and uh, there was a deliberate plan to infiltrate the Vatican, and uh, this dates back. Uh, you could probably say to the sixteen or seventeen hundreds and um pope uh, gregory i think it was the 16th he he published some documents about this plan and it was uh, a plan of the freemasons to infiltrate the church and what happened uh, was uh, when communism started to take hold uh, it adopted this plan it, it was in line with uh, with with this plan of infiltrating the, sur- the, the, the church and there are actually, uh, there's, a, there's a book called AA 1025, I believe it is, uh, AA standing uh, for anti apostle And it apparently is the, um, the memoirs of one of these communists and his, his, uh, his, um, his journals on his efforts to infiltrate uh, the church. And the way they did it was they, they came into the seminaries and they became priests. And they worked their way up the ranks. And so the way this plan was explained was that uh, it would not be done in one generation. It would take many generations. And uh, these soldiers, uh, so to speak, would w- work their way up into the ranks. And they would uh, reach a point where they may, if if they weren't, if they didn't become Pope themselves, that they would at least be surrounded by the Pope and that they would have an influence on him and on the, on, uh, on the selection of popes. so That was the bold plan that was put out there, and it was published by Pope Gregory, and it was also published again by uh, another pope, uh, I believe it was Pope Leo, I don't remember which one, but it was one of the Pope Leos who also published this plan, uh, because they had some certitude that it was coming from a valid source.
0: Hmm. Uh, let me ask you, uh, and just a reminder, this is part one of a two-part conversation. Uh, part two will uh, will drop on Friday. Paul Stark, the, uh, the director of The Vatican Deception, uh, um, more of a um, sort of a political thriller really than a documentary, but it is a fine documentary, and uh, it will be in worldwide online release in October of 2017, uh, sorry, 2018 which will coincide with the 101st anniversary of the uh, apparition of the, uh, the Virgin Mary uh, in Fatima, Portugal. Um, now, uh, I gotta ask you, you're a Catholic, you're a practicing Catholic. After, yeah. you, after you made this film, did it make you question your faith, or at least your, your Catholicism?
2: It did, but it did, I would say in a positive way, Because, uh, you know, I I would consider myself among uh, the sort of lax Catholics uh, when I started researching this. I I, I called myself Catholic, but I had sort of, um, I I don't know if I would say fallen away, but I, I, you know, I sort of, uh, I was neglecting my obligations as a Catholic. I wouldn't go to Mass uh, very very regularly. I didn't pray uh, hardly at all. Uh, I felt that uh, the Catholic values uh, made sense to me. Um, but but that's, that's how I was at the time. And as I started researching this and I started to realize what happened, it made me realize that, in a sense, I'm part of the problem because uh, I had fallen away. I had neglected my own obligations. I believe that if every Catholic in the world uh, would return to their faith and would uh, offer up prayers for the consecration of Russia I think we would see change but um, but but anyway for me I, I started to realize that there there was something that I had um, you know I had sort of left behind that I needed to take up again and if anything I found that it really strengthened my own uh, my own faith and my own beliefs
0: so just getting back to uh, to to uh, the, the third secret And again, the the backdrop of Vatican uh, II, the council taking place in in, uh, 1960, 61, uh, is the third secret, in part, revealing to us that that there is a great heresy taking place in the church uh, and that Vatican II was evidence of that.
2: Yeah, there does appear to be. And uh, we have a number of different sources that tell us that. And one of the, uh, you know, we we probably get to some conversation about Father Malachi, but uh, before we get into that, uh, I'd like to also mention uh, a Cardinal Chiapi, who also read The Third Secret. And uh, we have, uh, there there was a, a document published in 1995, I can't remember now, I'd have to look that up, but I know it was in 1995, uh where this document quoted Cardinal Chiappi as saying that in the third secret it is foretold among other things that the great apostasy in the church will begin at the top. So this is an important quote because it really tells us quite a bit about that third secret, even though it's not telling us the details. I think uh, it it tells you the magnitude of it. Uh, for those of for those of your listeners who don't know uh, what apostasy means, it essentially means an abandonment of beliefs, uh, which is quite serious. And, um, you know, if you look at what's happening today with um, the way the church is being run, uh, it doesn't appear to be teaching anymore. It, it seems to have lost its voice. It doesn't, it doesn't speak up about its beliefs the way it used to. It doesn't defend them and protect them. It, uh, it has gotten into it's it's now uh, what it does um, it's it's in a time now that we call a, a time of ecumenism and ecumenism means a dialogue with other religions uh... so when you're dialoguing you're not necessarily talking about your faith you're just talking about all faiths and that's, that's uh, never happened in the history of the catholic
0: church well nor has it ever happened that a pope has uh... in supposedly uh, off the record comments question the existence of hell
2: that's it we have a testimony from uh, the founder or CEO of uh, la Repubblica which is a major uh, newspaper in Italy one of the one of the biggest and uh, he, w- he met with uh, Pope uh, Francis uh, and he said that during their meeting uh, he claims that Uh, Francis told him that he didn't believe in hell. Again, this is a a serious, uh, it's a serious allegation, because uh, the entire church and its belief system is is built on on that foundation that hell exists, and that that human souls are trying to avoid that place. So if you have a Pope and I'm not saying that he did or not. I'm just, he hasn't commented on it. He hasn't corrected it, uh, what was said about it. So it leads me to think that you know uh, something's off there. Obviously, but if if there is a pope that doesn't believe in hell, uh, that's a, that's you know that's a heresy. That's a, an abandonment of belief.
0: Indeed, so, indeed, and we and, and we also have the same pope on a number of occasions, and this sort of harkens back to the infiltration of the Vatican by, by communists, we have a pope who, who has uh, harshly criticized the capitalist system, which yeah, is I'm not, very suspicious. I'm
2: not, I'm not familiar with that, but uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised, um, given you know, the kind of things that we've been seeing uh, coming from Rome lately. You know, one of the one of the biggest stories that I uh, I'm familiar with uh, is uh, regarding the family. Uh, There is a synod uh, that that uh, was held held by Francis to discuss uh, the family, and uh, there was a document that was put out uh, that some cardinals uh, said appears to contradict Catholic teaching. Appears to. So what they did is they uh, communicated with Francis and uh, asked him asked him to clarify what is meant by these documents to make sure that it's in line with Catholic teaching. And uh, Francis never responded to them. So what they ended up doing is they ended up publishing uh, uh, an open letter, a document, so that people were aware that uh, that these uh, cardinals were 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 questioning this. They they wanted an answer. They needed uh, some clarification on it. Uh, they call it the dubia, because there's some doubts uh, in the document regarding uh, uh, regarding the family. And again, uh, there was no response. No response coming from the the from Rome. So, you know, th- this is again very serious because we have what seems to be a conflict with um, with a document. Uh, between a document and and our and uh, and the catholic doctrine and we're not getting a response from rome that helps clarify the confusion about it so uh you know this seems to have been uh the general case there there isn't a lot of communication uh there isn't doesn't seem to be any effort to protect the traditional teachings of the church
0: and then of course we have obviously talk about the elephant in the room we have this this huge, uh, you know, sex uh, abuse scandal uh, that has been going on for decades and decades, and uh, Pope Francis is being accused, uh, as his predecessors have, particularly uh, Ratzinger or Benedict uh, Pope Benedict XVI, of covering up. Uh, so it yeah. seems like the church is constantly on 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 defense. Uh, did you care to to weigh in on on that?
2: Yeah, sure, And you know again, I understand for Catholics that this is an extremely difficult thing to come to terms with. Uh, we uh, recently now have uh, a papal nuncio, uh, the one who was uh, stationed in in Washington, who uh, claimed that he uh, he uh, warned the Pope. Uh, that he warned uh, Francis, I should, let's be specific here, he warned Francis that there were sanctions placed on that uh, Cardinal McCarrick, who was accused of um, uh, all of those uh, sexual pedophilia, the sexual scandal. Uh, And apparently, according to that Nuncio's uh, uh, testimony, uh, Francis uh, decided to lift some sanctions on that Cardinal that were placed on him by Benedict XVI. So in other words, uh, according to the testimony of the Papal Nuncio, the Pope lifted a sanction on a cardinal that should have been left there because it appears that that cardinal was being accused of all kinds of uh, sexual uh, predatory type of uh, activities.
0: Last question, and then we'll we'll say goodnight, and we'll uh, reconvene for for uh, part two of our our chat on Vatican on the Vatican deception. Should we be concerned that the present pope is a Jesuit?
2: Um, I don't think that I can uh, comment a whole lot on that. I think um, you know. I think if I think we should be more concerned about uh the validity of a pope whether a pope was validly chosen and um uh and and and, um uh, whether well yeah whether a pope was validly chosen i think that's what we should be more concerned about because i think it doesn't matter where a pope comes from if he's validly chosen regardless of whether he's uh from jesuit order or dominican or, or or whatever um, as long as the process is followed uh, according to the, the the proper rights of the church, uh, that should be our, our main concern.
0: Is there some question as to whether Pope Francis was is, is the the uh, the the, uh, the legitimate pope? Is that what you're suggesting?
2: I've I've have, I have uh, read a lot ab- about this, and my understanding is that there is certainly some question and again I, I hesitate to get into that uh, too much because uh, this is something that's being sort of uh, it's ca- sort of un- unraveling itself as as, uh, as time goes and, and I think the church will have to make some sort of a judgment at some point on, on whether or not he's a valid pope um, I think that what we need to do is uh, you know We need to observe what's going on and and we need to pay attention to it, for sure. And um, you know, I I think if you look at uh, the circumstances, uh, we have Benedict XVI, who was the first pope ever to retire uh, in the history of the Church. I know people will refer to other abdications, but they weren't retirements, they were abdications because of uh, unique circumstances. But here we have a pope who just retired because he said he was getting old or he his health was uh, was not the best, so that already in itself is unusual. We have uh, two sitting popes now. Uh, was the pope uh, was was Pope Benedict the Sixteenth abdication? Uh, was that legitimate? Was he forced out? Well, it's interesting. You, you point
0: you there's a scene in Vatican Deception, where a bolt of lightning strikes Saint Peter's when the, the the night it isn't announced it, it's announced that pope benedict xvi is ret- is retiring
2: that's right on that night the the night he announced his retirement it uh it struck uh, saint peter's and there's images of it uh, in the film um that seems to be quite telling some people might say it's a coincidence uh, but um you know given the circumstances around his retirement uh if uh, history finds that he was forced out of office, that he was not, uh, that he didn't retire because of his own choice, but because of the pressures around him. Uh, it's, it's possible that the Church may find one day that his retirement was not uh, a valid one.
0: All right, Paul, uh, you stay put. We will uh, we'll pick this up uh, on on Friday's episode. Thanks so much.
2: Okay, thank you, Richard.
0: Paul Stark, director of the Vatican Deception. A Prophecy of Hope and the Epic Battle to Conceal It, scheduled for worldwide release online in October of this year. Go to VaticanDeception.com, VaticanDeception.com for details. Well, before I say goodnight to the moon over Messenia, I'm going to tell you what's in store for episode 112.
1: They were calling it Helter Skelter. The history of rock and roll is littered with suspicious deaths and the unexplainable. The Beatles telling him that there was going to be this race war. Lennon, Hendrix, Presley, Jim Morrison, the truth told by the experts and the people there. Revelations that will blow yeah, your open. mind. The rock and roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcast and Google Play.
0: Coming up Friday, part two of my two-part conversation with Paul Stark, the director of the Vatican Deception. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.